It's an honor to be here and uh, to preach the word this morning. Uh, for those of you, like I said, who don't know, wife and I kind of lead the, the student ministry and just a lot that goes into that. Um, and we're just very honored to be able to have that, that privilege. Um, my wife and I also recently just moved um, and not very far, like five minutes down the road. And in that move, we went from the subdivision to a farmhouse. And um, it may come to a surprise to some of you. To some of you, knowing my, um, I don't know, genetics, uh, it's probably not too far-fetched. Um, but, you know, dad and grandpa, they farmed crops. Um, yeah, we bought like a horse farm. <laughs> um, if you would have asked me that, if that was possible, I would have told you no. Um, but then... Um, you know, we decided to keep going with the, the horse aspect of our house and uh, in order to help try to be a, an impact to our community, be a resource, um, and so forth, it's working out very well. Uh, with all of that, too, we've been kind of thinking, you know, maybe do we add a couple other animals, stuff like that, and here I am just living life that I didn't think I was going to live, uh, even like a year ago. Um, so as a nice little just moment, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of goats. Uh, this first one's from uh, North Carolina. Um, he can be kind of a bull sometimes, but um, there's one. So maybe, maybe we'll have a goat like that live at our house. Who knows? Um, this next one, uh, very talented. She does also very well with her sister, so it might be kind of a package deal, but uh, we're also maybe a goat like this. Um, or maybe just one that's so good at just being a at being a goat that it won't stop being a goat and doesn't know when to kind of hang them up. Yeah, that's the one. So, yeah, we hear some of you may be a little lost. Um, goat is an acronym for greatest of all time, and it's a popular debate within the sports world. Um, and the question is always, who is the GOAT? You know, and they uh, compare Michael Jordan to LeBron James or, um, you know, just a lot of comparison. And it's kind of competitive. It adds another layer to already competitive aspect of sports. Um, but it matches our culture, if you would agree, right? Our culture is very competitive and self-gratifying. Um, you know, think of in your job, you know, um, you're kind of sitting at the meeting, and you're like, I have more experience than all these other fools in here. You know, that's a little bit of a competitive aspect. You're like, you know what, maybe I'm just kind of the goat, the goat at my job. Um, I don't know if you've ever have worked at a job where they talk about someone who is, if it wasn't for them, this company wouldn't be here to where it is now. I'm sure you guys have heard that. Like, oh, man. Bless Linda, she was the greatest, you know, enjoy her retirement, you know, but without her, we wouldn't be here. You know, I've worked at some places like that where it's like, you know, we kind of idolize <laughs> different coworkers even, right? And consider them to be the greatest. If I could only be as good as Steve, he was a great guy. Um, uh, but yeah, we kind of have this competitive aspect in our culture. Um, my Myself growing up, for those of you who know me uh, way back when, you probably saw the competitive spirit, and um, 
that doesn't really go away. But um, this all ties in, don't worry, to Matthew chapter 18. So if you would open there as we are about to study just the first 14 verses. Um, before we really dive in, though, uh, if you would bow your heads and let's, let's pray together one more time. God, thank you for this opportunity just to share your word. God, I pray that you just help us uh, to really take in what your word is saying and apply it to our lives. Uh, give me clarity, um, God, and just allow us to just uh, grow together, uh, unify ourselves in your word, and allow us just to be changed by you. pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Matthew 18, we're going to start right in verse 1, and it reads, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So just in case you thought that you came up with the acronym GOAT, I'm sorry to tell you that you did not. Okay? The disciples are essentially asking Jesus, All right, who's the greatest? Okay? Um, and so obviously it's a sports debate, but really we can see all throughout history and our culture now, it kind of is a human nature, you could say, right? A simple nature um, that we see in our workplaces, in our schools, uh, obviously it's in the sports world. Uh, but it's kind of this who is the greatest, and that question as we really dive into it, it really is a question of selfishness, right? And of pride, right? I want to be the greatest, all right? I am better than everyone else. So I should be respected, is what it really boils down to. Um, and the disciples asked Jesus that question in verse 1 of chapter 18. And his response is pretty clear. Verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so we think of children, right? Especially those, if you've ever, obviously those who have had children um, and those who have worked with children, you understand that kind of between the like six months to like maybe a year and a half or so in a child's life, they are pretty innocent, we would agree, right? Um, and who do the children brag about the most? It's usually what? Their parents, right? As they start to, to talk and communicate. And Jesus uses this symbolism of a, of a child um, and just how our faith needs to be that of a child. A good quote from um, John MacArthur says, Children have no, accomplish or no achievements and no accomplishments to offer or which to commend themselves. You know, a little child up to the age of one, one and a half, once they start to get into that terrible twos. Um, before that, they're pretty innocent, right? Uh, they care for one of another genuinely. Um, they'll help each other out. What is the, one of the first things that we teach our ch children to do is to share, right? Is to think about others. And they do that relatively willingly, especially early on though, right? Um, and we need to have a humble faith, and that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here in these first couple of verses. Um, I just want to read for you also to put ourselves in the right mindset. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. You don't have to turn there. Um, but it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here the disciples ask a puzzling question. All right, it's not uncommon, right? And it's something that we would probably ask Jesus ourselves. They're asking, who's the greatest? 
But really, Jesus, in calling the child over and explaining to them that their, their faith needs to be childlike, innocent. And if we read Ephesians chapter 2, we are made known, and it's very clear, that none of the part of our faith that we possess or we recipients of is of our own doing. So what do we have to brag or to be prideful about when it comes to our faith? So the question ends up maybe appropriate, right, at the time, and it's still kind of a relative question that we ask all the time of who is the greatest, but really it's an uncalled for question by the disciples because their faith is not of their own doing, and it should be based on humbleness and not pride. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This child that Jesus used in verse 3 and 4, but also here in verse 5, is an analogy for a new or a young believer. So, when we have that kind of a context in mind, reread verse 5. It says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So this kind of takes us to our, a, a really key point of how we act to new believers reflects our spiritual maturity. How we act to new believers reflects our spiritual maturity. See, we as older or more experienced believers can be kind of nasty and exiling to new believers, right? We accidentally kind of create this um, kind of country club kind of feeling when it comes to church, right? And what does it really boil down to? It boils down to pride, right? This greatest, you know, who's the best? It's an outside thing that we've clearly covered that can exist in our schools, in our workplaces, um, but it, it bleeds into the church, right, within these four walls. And um, we can become prideful to one another. And if someone isn't quickly measuring up to our success level spiritually or isn't walking the walk and talking the talk immediately, we kind of, if we're not careful, as older, uh, more mature uh, believers, you know, we can quickly push them off to the side and be like, ah, I really don't know if they're saved. And first of all, who are we to say that? And second of all, our faith, like Jesus is telling the disciples, should be humble-based. So accidentally creating this club membership mentality within the church walls is a no-no. And in verse 6, you know, Jesus starts to elaborate even more, but I think back to a personal example of, and we all have them, most likely, of moments where you feel like the outside person, right? Whether you're new to a workplace, whether you're new to a neighborhood or new um, to just about anything. Um, I think back to a relatively comical um, example is my father-in-law and I went golfing one time on vacation. Um, we were at, have you guys ever been to the villages or know where the villages are in Florida? Yeah, it's, it's the old people capital of the world. That's it. Um, I didn't want to say it. I'm glad someone else did. Um, no, but we were there, and we were like, oh, let's go golfing, you know. And I know everything down there is kind of a little like, you know, everyone's got to know the rules here. <clears throat> we 
misunderstood, I think, because we showed up to golf, have a great time, and not just me getting interesting looks of kind of a why are you here, but even my father-in-law was getting those same looks, and I'm like, whew, <laughs> oh, I feel like the odd one out. Um, it was an interesting golfing experience, let's just say that, we'll wrap that up, um, but Love our oldest generation, but right then and there, I was like, whew, whew, I feel out of place. <laughs> but you kind of, it's, so sure, it can exist on the golf course, but it can exist anywhere, though, right? That club mentality, the country club aspect, and it can certainly, unfortunately, bleed into our church. Let's reread verse 6 here, um, where Jesus is speaking about, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Yes or no, is Jesus being serious about this? Do you understand the, the serious tone that Jesus has in this? See, the millstone is a stone used for grinding grain. And these stones could be handheld and could range up to a thousand up to three thousand pounds. Like we're talking about like a great millstone that Jesus is talking about here, probably weighed somewhere between the thousand, fifteen hundred pound range. Okay? So literally, like you have to take a donkey, fasten them to the millstone, and send them on their way, and they just walk in circles in order to grind up the grain. So Jesus is saying, if you <laughs> it would be better for you that person to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea, then what? Then causing someone who believes in him to sin. Yikes. That's harsh. And the Jews knew all too well about this millstone because some of those larger ones that I mentioned were used even as um, execution devices by the Gentiles. So um, he didn't have to do too much context explaining for them to understand, the disciples, what he meant and the severity of this analogy. So in summary, this first point, not only do we display um, our knowledge of God and relationship with him by how we receive new believers, but it's also about how we disciple new believers. We are to help kind of lead them away from sin, teach them kind of what God would have for us to do, all right? Because it's a serious point and a serious topic to Jesus, right? The whole millstone thing. Yeah, so it's, it's very serious. But when it boils down to this first section, we need to have a humble, childlike faith. And that we need to disciple younger believers and understand that sometimes new believers or new people that are stepping foot into these four walls, um, they might have some bad habits. That people may not have um, maybe exactly the same 100% viewpoints that we have. And us as older or more mature, spiritually mature believers need to understand that. They need to be patient. All right? We need to receive new believers as we would an innocent child. How we treat new believers is a reflection of our understanding of our faith. Do we see it 
pridefully, or do we see it from a humble aspect that you can get from Ephesians 2 that we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to be prideful over. This is not our work. It's his work. And who are we to hold people to a country club type mentality? That's what Jesus is saying in these first couple of verses. But let's continue reading here in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Once again, we can um, read a, a passage of this section of Matthew chapter 18 and go, yikes, strong language, right? But it shows the sincerity and the genuine seriousness of Jesus to these different topics that we're talking about this morning. This is a graphic symbolism of a reaction to sin in our lives. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. So Jesus warns the world, really, of this temptation to sin, that we not to do that, everybody included. But then the second half, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom temptation come. Believers will certainly face temptation, all right? But there's a stern warning to those who tempt others. But woe to the one whom the temptation comes. So we get the strong warning from Jesus here in these first couple of verses of this section. And then we see an analogy where it's a little graphic, right? An analogy of body parts being removed if they cause you to sin. Is that a literal thing we should be doing? Yes or no? No, no, we're not. We're not supposed to do that. Um, but the Jesus is using strong language to create strong seriousness, though, of our reaction to sin. See, as believers, we need to be serious about cutting out the sin in our lives. As believers, we need to be serious about cutting out the sin in our lives. What does that look like? Well, for those who may struggle with money, right? We spend a little too much of it on stuff that doesn't matter. We can't manage it one way or the other. Maybe a solution to that, maybe that you should give more away if you have a problem hoarding it or managing it. Maybe take what you need to live, you know, bills to pay all that stuff, spend that. And if you can't manage the rest of it, maybe you should think about giving it away. Or you struggle with pornography, maybe you should go to the Verizon store after this and switch out your smartphone for a flip phone. You have trouble coveting? How about maybe removing some of the social media apps? You like to slander? Same thing. Our sin and our reaction to sin needs to be serious. 
Because if Jesus uses language such as this, and such as what we just read about humility, don't you think Jesus is serious about our sin? And it's tough, right? It's tough to battle through sin. We each have our own aspect, our own part of the spectrum of sin that we struggle with, right? And that's to be expected, right? Like earlier in this, in this section, verses 7 and 8, we are going to face temptation and temptation to sin. That is a given. Everyone's going to do that, whether you believe in God or not. Our reaction to our struggle with sin needs to be taken seriously. Because if Jesus is willing to use an analogy of literally cutting out body parts and how it might be better for you to like, live with, uh, I don't know, one hand, one foot, an eye, than be cast into internal fire, isn't it worth it? It's a tough pill to swallow. Don't, don't think that I'm coming to you this morning as someone who has mastered this. Understand that this is the truth, right? So this is the authority of Scripture that we talk about this this morning. It's difficult, but we should be serious about our sin and how we lead new believers through sin. How are they to navigate? Are we talking about kind of discipleship this morning? So we should be fixing our own house, right? Managing our temptation, our reaction to sin. And we should be willing to help others who go through the same. Let's read it in verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That perish at the end in verse 14, not talking about like physical death, but it's talking about spiritually perishing. We often think of you know the 99 and leaving the 99 and going to the one who went away. And we often think of that through the lens of Jesus and his love for us. But we don't often think of it as how we may have to treat other newer believers. See, earlier we talked about kind of that country club mindset that can often kind of gain some traction within our church. But really, if we're supposed to be thinking humbly and supposed to be helping others, including ourselves, go away from sin, not get trapped by it, be serious about how we address our sin, and if one person is going astray, rather than giving into the country club mentality and saying, well, I guess they weren't saved, or, oh, another one fell off the wagon, I'll pray for them. No. Our responsibility is to seek out the one who went astray and help them return. Yeah? If Jesus did it for us, and if we came to that knowledge and we believe in that, why should we stand on the sidelines and watch someone else 
walk away and struggle. It's an honest question. Yet too often in our churches, we see this all the time. Someone's child is struggling with something. Oh, we shame them. How dare they participate in that sin? How dare those parents raise such children? And we start to exile people. Or, man, that marriage fell through? Gosh, that's, that's terrible. They did a terrible job. I don't think that that is being humble and seeking after other believers. Do you? I think our response ought to be if we see someone straying from what God would have them to do, that we come alongside them. As a healthy body of believers, we ought to come alongside them and say, no, 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 the path is this way. It is our responsibility to look out for the spiritual stray. It's not a suggestion, right? It is... It is a command. It is a responsibility that we are to look after the one of the hundred, and if that one goes away, that we are to seek after them. Why? Who are we to be above someone else as a child of God? See, us as a church, right? We, Heritage Baptist is growing, and it's an amazing, exciting time be a part of, right? We have so many, we've created truly, I think, now starting to treat, to create a melting pot of people that attend every week. We have the people that have attended church every Sunday for the past 75 years, okay? And we have truly the people who just came in for the first time today and a whole mixture in between. So, if you're listening to this morning and you're thinking, this sounds like it's more for the more spiritually mature, maybe for the old people. No, this is for everyone. What Jesus is talking to his disciples about, mind you that he is discipling his disciples at this time. He's not ridiculing them for asking who's the greatest. He took the time to seriously and genuinely teach them. Let's take note of that this morning as well. But as our church continues to grow and we continue to get people who are either new to our church, who may not be new to their faith, or new to our church and new to their faith, or just new to church in general, or who have been here the whole time, or been at another place the whole time and now just recently transplanted, we've got this melting pot of people that are all together, and it's easy for people to get left out and exiled and ridiculed because they don't measure up to our standards. I'm sorry, but that's a Pharisee mentality. We're adding something. Because if you look back to Ephesians, I didn't do it. I'm not the reason why people can come to know Christ. Nate didn't do it. No one did it, except for God. So who are we to hold people to our own standards and exile people because they don't meet my criteria? I'm sorry, but that is backwards. And that is against everything that the gospel says. So if you are new to this church, if you are new to your faith, 
consider this to be an information download. This is just for your knowledge to take in and consider and to keep in mind that as you grow in your spiritual maturity, that you keep these in mind that you don't make the same mistakes as a spiritual generation before you. And if you're new this morning, we don't quite go this full speed all the time. But understand that we love you and we are excited that you're here. And we hope that you experience people that love you humbly and will care for you if you go astray. And to those who have grown up in the church and have, this has been your life for many, many years, this is, this is also for you. Because, as mentioned before, too often in too many churches, this is a problem. How many people can we think of, if you've been around church long enough, who have stepped away from church and their faith because of how other people have treated them? Christian people, you know, we're supposed to be different, countercultural, yet sometimes people face more scrutiny, exile, and abuse in these four walls than they do outside of them. That's a problem. And it's something that we need to be thinking as a church, as we continue to grow, that we don't lose sight of that. Because it wasn't a problem when we all agreed and we had 40 members here. But if this becomes a problem, the more and more we grow. So to combat that, we have to remember what Jesus says here in Matthew 18 and understand the seriousness of, look at the verbiage. Look at the language that he used. It's still strong when you translate it to English. Yikes. Jesus, loving his disciples, mentoring them, teaching them, but still using strong, firm language to drive home the point. So I will ask you, all of us this morning, is our faith childlike? Is our faith innocent? Is our faith moldable? Think back, think, think about a child for, for a second. To a child, who is their greatest hero? A young child. Their greatest hero is often their mom or dad, or both. If they grew up in a home that had us both. So for us, to have a childlike faith means that God is our greatest hero. It's not what we did. It's not the standards that we put in place. And it's not the country cup rules that we have within these four walls. Our number one concern should be to exalt and glorify a Heavenly Father. And if the way we treat other people is not reflective of that, that needs to change. Because if Jesus uses strong language here in this, this text, I think it matters. And if we want to be countercultural and if we want to be different, then we need to actually be different. And it comes with a moment of self-reflectiveness, right? 
we have to look in the middle, in the mirror, look at the middle section of this text. What sin are you struggling with? And are you actively trying to remove it and cut it away from your life? Because if you can't love yourself, if you can't look out for yourself and you can't love for others, how are you going to witness in the community? How, do you, how can you call yourself a believer, a Christian, if you can't disciple the people who attend here on Sundays? If we're going to be a church of the community, a church that reaches out and loves people and genuinely wants to come alongside one another, but we can't do it here on Sundays and Wednesday nights, what are we doing? Our faith needs to be childlike and it needs to be humble and it needs to be setting up boundaries and guardrails to help us keep more and more Christ-like so that other people can see it. And if someone drifts, it's our responsibility to hop off onto the exit and bring them back to the main expressway. Because if we're not doing that, for the sake of the gospel, then what are we doing it for? 